Okay. I don't even know how to use that thing. Um, before we jump into the message today, I just want to go over a few announcements uh, that are pretty important to the life of our church. Uh, one of them is Operation Christmas Child. Uh, Samaritan's Purse is a global ministry that helps resource and come alongside underprivileged and impoverished people around the world. Uh, one of the ways they do that is through this thing called Operation Christmas Child. Every Christmas season actually takes place in the fall uh, where people around the world uh, take shoeboxes and they fill them with supplies and gifts for children uh, all over the world. And we have partnered with Samaritan's Purse uh, for several years, uh, and each year, uh, Lebanon Christian Church just responds so well. Uh, every year, we uh, bring in hundreds of shoe boxes to be sent around the world. We have uh, life groups that will fill several boxes. Uh, we have a women's group that will fill several boxes, and we have families that will take two, three, four boxes home sometimes and fill them, and that season starts now. Uh, if you go out these doors and through the glass hallway, there's a place called the hub, and there are a bunch of empty shoe boxes. And if you feel the Lord pulling you uh, to help fill boxes for children in need all over the world, uh, grab however many you want. Inside, there are instructions about what to include and what not to include uh, in those shoe boxes. If you lose that sheet, by the way, you can go to our website, lebanonchristian.org, click on the events tab, there's Operation Christmas Child, and you can have links to find uh, that sheet again. But we'll fill those, bring those back by November 13th. You can bring them back as early as this week or next week and just bring them back to the hub. They'll be able to tell which ones are full and which ones are not. Uh, full shoe box is a little bit heavier than an unfilled one, and uh, they'll work on boxing those up. We're actually a collection site for our community, so several other churches and organizations will be bringing their shoe boxes here during collection week, and then uh, we have a team that will load those up and get those to the main distribution point. So Operation Christmas Child is now, it starts this week, grab shoe boxes over the next few weeks, take them home, fill them, bring them back if you're able to. Uh, the second announcement is stories. How has Jesus changed everything for you? I just look out the room and I know some of your stories and I know that Jesus has changed so much for you. Would you share that with us? Uh, we will not share your story without your permission. Uh, but we wanna start getting in the habit of collecting stories, not just in this season, but for the rest of our life as a church, to be able to celebrate how God is moving and shaping and changing lives We'd like to collect those, kind of curate those like a museum of stories at stories at lebanonchristian.org. You can email us your story. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be your whole life story. It can be short. This is how Jesus changed me. Um, if you're not an emailer, if text's not your thing, um, then feel free to write it out in a note or a card. Hopefully we were able to decipher your handwriting and um, bring it by the church office. And just make sure you put attention stories and we'll save that. Um, you can also mail it to us, use our Lebanon Christian address, and then put attention stories. And we'll start collecting those over the coming months and years, and that'll help us know how to share those stories. And again, we will not share a story without your permission. But the stories are really important, especially leading up to Christmas for us this year. Uh, this Advent season, our theme is, this changes everything. How Jesus, who he is, what he's done and coming has changed everything. And, and we want to share how Jesus has changed everything for you and for me. 
The third announcement is related to our annual meeting. We approved new bylaws as a congregation uh, last fall, and those bylaws call for uh, an annual congregational meeting during the month of November. Um, And so we are on November 20th from 4 to 5 p.m. going to have an annual meeting in this space. We would love for you to come out, especially if you're a member. We would love for someone from your family to be here, if not your whole family. And we're going to share some reports about what's been going on this year, what is to come in the months and year ahead. We'll also be giving a financial report. Uh, And then one of the new obligations under the new bylaws is that we need to have a vote on the budget for 2023. And so we'll present that budget and then have that vote and let you get kind of the financial picture of where our church is and where we're going. That's November 20th from 4 p.m to 5 p.m. And we would love to have you out. Uh, it'll be a great time to see kind of some more of the nuts and bolts and what God is doing and anticipate what is to come. Let's pray before we jump into the word. Father, you are uh, working and moving powerfully in our world. And God, sometimes through the chaos in our own lives or maybe even in our own hearts, we can't quite see that. And Father, I just pray through the power of your spirit that you would break through, that you would help us to see how you are still working, how you have not changed. You are powerful. Uh, You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, even as we discover more of how you moved in the early days of your disciples after you ascended to heaven, um, help us see that same power exists today and that you still want people to come to know you, you want the world to come to experience you in your order, in your principles, in your promises, because, God, that's where life is really found. And um, you made it possible through Jesus. So, God, may he be honored. May you be honored. I'm continually amazed that you use the foolishness of preaching, is what Paul says, uh, to shape and to change and to save many lives. And so, God, would you use... Um, the simple act of sharing your words with people to change our lives today. It's in your name we pray and trust. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are finishing up a series, an introductory series on the book of Acts. We, we began about six weeks ago. This look into Acts which will take us all the way through Easter of next year. Uh, we've called it School of Acts. And before we continue that series, I just want to remind you why. Why are we in Acts? It's a question I've been asked over the last few weeks in different settings. Why Acts? Why now? Uh, Given the division or conflict or difficulty, the uncertainty in our world, why, why, why are we choosing to teach through the New Testament book of Acts? Why? Why Acts when we look out and it looks as though many of us will be experiencing one of the most difficult financial times in our lifetimes? Why Acts? Why now? Why Acts, why now, given what you're experiencing in your life, your own set of griefs and burdens and trials and troubles, uh, your, your battles with temptation and other challenges, why Acts, why now? And I want to continue to answer that question with the same response. When we look to um, the historical eyewitness record that Luke provides in the book of Acts, the experiences, the stories of real people like you and me. He does so to a people that are in a world of conflict, 
a world of division. When you look to the first century and you can see a number of conflicts, there are difficulties between various ethnicities and nations. There are difficulties between uh, some of the Jews that are more animate about the Jewish faith and then uh, Christians. We see that in, in the story of Saul, who's actually persecuting the church and arresting Christians. Uh, we see it even in, in government. We, we see difficulties between the rulers of Judah and Judea and the Roman leaders. We see it when it comes to how the Romans perceive the Christians and how they're doing, how it's a threat to how um, they want people to live, how people don't like the way of Jesus. There's conflict, there's division, there's difficulty. You want to talk about difficult financial times. One of the first stories in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 tells the story of how some widows were being neglected. They were poor. They didn't have means to supply for themselves. You look at the story of these early uh, disciples of Jesus going throughout the world. And many times they're going from city to city dependent upon others to help supply for their needs. Or they work these little side hustles to help supply for their needs. But they don't typically um, show a lot of wealth. They knew financial difficulty. When you, when you think about trials and temptations and struggles and challenges, we see those unfold on the pages of Acts. We referenced briefly a couple weeks ago in the math of the kingdom subject that there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who wrestled with the place of wealth in their own lives, like Will we choose to actually give up what we sold our property for? Are we going to keep it for ourselves? There was temptation there. We, we looked to Paul on his travels in places like Corinth and Ephesus and, and Thessalonica and, and Antioch and, and all these places in the Roman Empire. And when we looked at his letters, we see that they too struggled with sexual temptation, affluence, misplaced priorities, doubts, uh, there's death. And yet in all of these, in all of these, God still is working and moving as people trust and follow him, empowered and enabled by his spirit. He leads the church, even in their difficulty, division, conflict, financial uncertainty, trials and struggles. He leads them to be a transforming force in the world. And so why acts, why now? Because God still wants to do that. God still wants to work through his people who trust and follow him, who align their lives around him and his words and his truth. He empowers them by his spirit that we might still be a transforming force in our world, a world that knows division and conflict, a world that knows uncertainty. Who's the certain one? A world that knows um, difficulty and trial and chaos. Who's the one that brings perfect peace? Hello, the Prince of Peace. And so we want to learn how we can experience those very same things because although the nuances of our difficulty and our challenges are different and unique. They share great similarities across time and space and civilization because people struggle with the same things generation after generation after generation after generation. Just the faces and the names change. And so that's why Acts and why now. So we launched with this series of School of Acts just to give this introduction, this overview of some of the primary themes um, to kind of help us kind of get our bearings. We looked at the orientation in Acts chapter 1, seeing some primary themes of th like waiting, the story of Jesus continuing, the power of the Spirit and being a witness. We looked at history in the book of Acts. The second week, looking at Stephen's message in particular, Acts chapter 7, to show that all of history is really his story and that God's continuing even today to work through history. 
Uh, we, we've looked at the language of the kingdom, math of the kingdom. Last week, Tom took us on a journey through the geography of the kingdom. You've even heard how impactful that was as Sean shares uh, about some of the ways it impacted his life. And today we're gonna end this introductory series by looking at chemistry in the kingdom. And even when I say the word chemistry, some of you are like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Like, yeah, my experience with chemistry was the same, okay? I told you a few weeks ago I was not good at math. Guess what chemistry has a lot of? Math. And so I struggled in chemistry. In fact, I love sharing this. I failed chemistry in high school. Yet I still graduated with an honors diploma in the state of Indiana. And people say, well, how did you do that? Because God blessed me with a man named Mr. Snyder as my chemistry teacher, who was like 75 years old, no joke, as he was teaching us. Like he should have retired a long time ago. Um, but Mr. Snyder, what he chose to grade upon was your effort rather than your scores. And so he would always take a student who showed effort and he would raise their grade beyond what the evaluations and tests showed. And so all my tests showed that Craig deserved a 60 in chemistry. Mr. Snyder put on my report card a B plus, which allowed me to still graduate with honors, seventh in my class and all those things, but I was terrible at it. Um, chemistry in the kingdom of God. When you, if you were to look uh, for a definition of chemistry, if you just Google what is chemistry, the top hit for me, this is what came up. Uh, it's the branch of science that, that focuses on uh, identifying the substances of which matter is composed. It's the investigation of their properties and how they combine and uh, work to form even new substances. So chemistry is this study of the substances of which matter is composed. It's investigating even those substances to see how they shift and change and form to create new substances. How does this apply to the church? Well, what I want to do this morning is look at what we see described of the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We're going to look at the matter of the church and see what are those substances, what are those elements that are at work in the church for it to be this powerful force in the world knowing that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he does not shift, he does not change, and how God can still do the same thing, wants to do the same thing, and quite honestly is doing the same thing today, even if you and I don't see it. For me, one of the most humbling uh, slides that Tom shared last week, and if you haven't watched last week's message on the geography of the kingdom, you can find it on YouTube, uh, but one of the most humbling slides was that slide that showed how God is moving around the world and even though the influence of the church in America has decreased, how exponentially has increased in other difficult places. And so sometimes we can begin to think that just because there's maybe a struggle within the community of faith in our country that maybe God is distant or absent, and we just need to be reminded that's not true, that God is on the move. And in fact, there is an incredible refining happening through the difficulties in our own country to the body of Christ, to help us align around what is most important to be the people that he has called us to be. So, so what are those elements? What are those substances? Let's look at Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47. These words follow uh, Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Just to recap, uh, Jesus meets with his disciples. Uh, he tells them to wait on the Spirit. They gather with 120 others in Jerusalem, and they wait, and they pray, and then 
The Spirit of God comes down in a powerful display. Peter preaches an incredible message, and people's hearts are changed. Verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what did this early community of believers, 3,000 plus strong, what was... What was the matter? What was the church made of? What were the elements? What were the substances? And here's what we read in verses 42 to 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This powerful picture of God on the move through the power of his spirit, the life of his redeemed community. When I, when I took chemistry, one of the things I was good at, God's kind of gifted me with what I would call, or people might call a photographic memory, so I can uh, remember things uh, well just by looking at them. I can, you know, even process and remember what it smelled like, felt like, all that stuff. And so I can, I can, I can capture things in my mind pretty well. I just can't do the math part. And so one of the first assignments in chemistry class was to memorize the periodic table of elements. I think that's probably pretty common. So we had a few weeks to, to memorize these things with their number. And, and quite honestly, our, our periodic table, I think, was a little bit shorter than this one because they add to it from time to time as they identify um, substances and things in the world. But we had to memorize this. It's placed in the periodic table, it's number, it's letter, all those things. And so I spent the first month doing that, I passed that with flying colors. I don't even know what that phrase means, but I passed it. Um, What I hope to show you today is just a small table of elements that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 specifically uh, through 47 of what we can find in the early church. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a profound and important list of elements. So let's start with the first one. You can see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's one, to fellowship, that's two, the breaking of bread, and to prayer, there are four. We're going to begin where we end. Uh, We'll start with the word devoted. That word devoted occurs in a tense in the original language that suggests ongoing action. It's not something that occurred in the past. It's not something that was a one-off. It occurred once. It is ongoing. So when it says that they devoted themselves, this community of disciples, what we would call the church, is continually, persistently persevering in what shows up. It's ongoing. They are devoted continually to what? To the apostles' teaching. What's the apostles' teaching? Who were the apostles? The apostles is a word that's given to the 12 disciples of Jesus post-resurrection. That's important because the first 12 disciples uh, included a man named Judas, who we learn in the Gospels betrayed Jesus. uh, And he ended up in the grief that came from that, hanging himself as Jesus was being crucified. So when Jesus died... There were only 11 remaining disciples. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples over 40 days. There are 11 of them. And in in that journey, they need to complete their number back to 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. God's got reasons for all of these things. And so they cast lots, they pray, and then identify Matthias as their 12th disciple. 
So those 12 disciples, now keep in mind when we talk about the 12, we're using a name that's used of others. There are disciples, period, apprentices, learners of Jesus. And then we have the 12, these specific people who then are kind of renamed in scripture, the apostles, the sent ones. Do you remember Jesus' words uh, to them, Matthew chapter 28? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. So he talks to these men, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world. Every ethnicity, every nation is what that world means. You are my disciples, and you're going to do what? Make disciples. You're my learner. You're my apprentice. You're learning from me to live like me, and you're going to go into the world to help others learn from me and to live like me. And how are you going to do that? Well, part of it's going to be you're going to baptize them. You're going to immerse them into my life. You're going to baptize them. We have a baptistry over here. Their faith will lead them to commit their whole lives to him, which we see in baptism. What else will they do? They will teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded They're going to continue to teach the very things that they have learned so others can learn it and live it. So he says that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's what they're devoted to. The apostles are simply teaching what Jesus taught them. They're retelling his stories. They're meeting with these early followers, these other disciples, and they're saying, hey, here's what he taught us. You know, he taught us this in the temple one day. There was this woman and all these other people were, were filling the offering boxes. Their coins were clanking around. And, and, and there's this woman, she was a widow, and she came in, and she just took these, these two small coins, all that she had, and she put them in the box. And, and guys, this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to give out of sacrifice. That's where generosity is born. And so the disciples are retelling what Jesus told them. They're, they're teaching how Jesus, not only what, what he said, but, but who he was how he was the fulfillment of the mosaic and the prophetic expectation that that he is the Messiah. He's the one who's come to save them from sin, rescue them from sin, and rescue them to life in him. So what's the apostles teaching? It's all these words they're sharing to help other people know who Jesus is like they know who he is. Now, this probably involves some words of the Old Testament. Certainly Jesus used those. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What's really interesting is that there are several things he taught them that we, we won't ever be privileged to, un, to know or understand. How do I know that? Because the Gospel of John ends with some of these words that all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did if they were recorded. But these are written so that by believing you may have life in his name. So John even tells us, hey, listen, my, my pen ink is running short. My parchment is running short. So I'm going to give you just what you need to know. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that Jesus did. And the beauty of the early church is they got to hear those things that Jesus said and taught and did. But even what we have is enough for us. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Where did the apostles teach them? Well, they, they taught in the temple courts. Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Where were the temple courts? If you fast forward into Acts chapter three, something really cool that unfolds is that Peter and John, uh, get, they meet a beggar at the gate called Beautiful and he, he wants some money and they say, well, we don't have the money you want, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus Christ, I get up and walk. They're on their way to pray and they make their way to Solomon's colonnade in the temple courts, and people know where to find them. If you look to Acts chapter 3, verse 11, it tells you that people came to find Peter and John and the man that had been healed there. 
I've got a picture of Solomon's colonnade, also called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, the court area outside of the center structure. That's where the apostles would go and they would teach. So people would gather, people were hearing about this Jesus who changed everything and they would simply teach so that people might learn how to live like Jesus. And that's important. Even embedded in the phrase devoted there is this commitment to continually doing it and living it. Uh, Something that happened in our world with the Enlightenment, especially Western culture, is that we disassociated learning and knowledge from living and life action. And so we began to treasure knowing, 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 teach me more, give me more facts, let me understand, but that never had to translate to living. Well, up until the Enlightenment, and even still in Eastern cultures today, those two uh, are not separated, they're together. To know is to do, to learn is to live. And so as the disciples, as the apostles are teaching, the people are learning to live like Jesus. They're apprentices of Jesus. They're dedicated to learning from them to live like Jesus in the temple courts. House to house is what it says in verse 46. They're, they're in homes eating and they're having conversations around the table. Here's who Jesus is. This is what he's done. How do we know? Well, the prophet Isaiah said this and he's the fulfillment of that. And, and they would teach that people's lives could be shaped and changed. One of the struggles we face if we're going to be a church whose matter is made up of the substance of the apostles' teaching, the teachings of Jesus, learning his word and living his way, keeping those in balance is that we fight against these kind of enlightenment principles. If you go to the doctor and you're a healthy weight and you say you want to maintain your weight, they're going to tell you to make sure that your caloric input, like what you're eating, is matched by your output, that you're consuming as much of the energy that you're taking in. If we consume more than we are able to give out through exercise or activity, guess what happens? We gain weight, right? Uh, Exhibit A. Um, And uh, and so we, we, we gain weight as we take in more than we live. And what happens when that weight gets more and we move from overweight to obese, it takes a big toll on our heart, on our energy, on our ability to fulfill kind of the life that God has called us to. The same thing happens even within the church. When our learning outpaces our desire to live, we can become overweight and sometimes even obese followers of Jesus and our hearts aren't shaped to look like his. In fact, if you want a picture of maybe some obese spiritual people, we can look at the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They knew everything. And Jesus tells them in the book of John that you study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like you study them diligently, but you miss that they point to me. You learn all this stuff. You know how to cross every T and dot every I. Like you know the law inside and out, but yet it hasn't shaped your life. And what do we know of not all the Pharisees, but some of them, they, they, they hurt the people of God. And sometimes that even happens within the kingdom of God to this day. People know a lot, but they don't allow it to shape how they live. And then they wield what they know in ways that are harmful and hurtful. And if we're going to be a church, we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, letting our learning keep pace with our living. We're apprentices of Jesus. 
So just some practical questions. Do you have a hunger first and foremost for the apostles' teaching? Do you want to know what Jesus taught? Do you want to live according to his truth, believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the light of the world guiding us in the darkness? Do you want that? Are you willing to ask the hard questions alongside me and say, okay, where have I maybe allowed my learning to outpace my living? What would happen? I heard someone say this once, if we read through the pages of scripture, when it told us to do something, we just closed the Bible and we went out and did it. Uh, what would change in our lives? Richard Wormbrand, a great missionary uh, during World War II, uh, was approached by a pastor and he was trying to impress Richard Wormbrand. He said, hey, I want you to know when you come to our church, we are a Bible-believing church. He was saying, listen, we're all about the Bible. Like we know it inside and out. And Richard Wormbrand's response to the pastor was, I don't want to know if you're a Bible-believing church. Are you a Bible-living church? Do you live according to what you've learned? Will we live according to what we've learned? So that's element number one, the apostles' teaching. Element number two, what's the next thing? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what? Fellowship. Fellowship is one of those interesting words. If you're new to following Jesus or exploring uh, faith, uh, you may have not heard it before. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard it a lot. It's one of those words we've used so much. We don't always know what it means anymore, right? Like uh, we had fellowship halls in some churches. I think we even had one named that for a period in our, in our church history. A fellowship hall, the place where fellowship takes place. You ask people, you know, uh, how was their, their, their group experience? They went to lunch together. Well, we had great fellowship. Well, what does fellowship mean? Often for us, it means hanging out, a sense of good time, uh, maybe, maybe using our modern terminology, we had some good vibes with one another. But fellowship is way more than that. In fact, the biblical idea of fellowship based upon the Greek word koinonia, which occurs here in Acts chapter two, verse 42, is only used 15 times in all of the New Testament. Not once in the gospels, only once in the book of Acts, right here in Acts chapter two, verse 42, and 14 other times, and they're all used by Paul. And every time they're used, that word koinonia means sharing in common. But when you read what the New Testament has to say about koinonia, about fellowship, it is not a sharing that's easy. It is a sharing that comes through sacrifice and submission. It comes at a cost. True fellowship, true sharing costs us. We see that here in Acts chapter two. What does it share, say that they shared? Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold, verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They're willing to share through sacrifice and submission, but the fuller picture comes into play as we look through how that word is used throughout the New Testament. We begin to see that it's not just about sacrifice and sub submitting our stuff, our resources to God, it's about sacrificing and submitting our energy, our time, all for the greater good of his body, the church. But it's even more costly than that. Look at Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verses one through four. Um, the word fellowship, by the way, in the Greek, koinonia, shows up here in Philippians two. I'm not gonna tell you where it is right away. I'm gonna let you kind of discover it as we read and then I'll point it out. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Did you find what you think might be fellowship? It's in verse 1. It says, if any common sharing in the Spirit. In fact, some of the, your Bibles may say any fellowship in the Spirit. This is this sharing, this sacrificial, submissive sharing ignited by the Spirit in us that leads us not just to sacrifice and submit wealth and time and energy, but look at what he says. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. It's about sacrificing more than money, more than time, more than energy. It's about sacrificing my opinion, my preferences, my rights, my privileges, my wants, my likes. As long as I don't compromise the truth of who he is, his word, and his purposes. That's costly. And what's the example he gives? If you were to fast forward and read verses five through 11, you see the picture of Jesus. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who didn't hold on to his equality with God, but let go of it, released it, emptied himself and became nothing, took the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, was obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. He is the picture of what it looks like to Share to sacrifice, to submit what true biblical fellowship is. And it's not hard to see why this is so difficult for the church in America. We are taught from a young age, I would almost use the word groom because groom is a very negative word right now in our culture, but we are groomed, we are taught that it's about our rights, our privileges, it's about what we want. We live in a consumer culture that says it's about what I want, what I like. If I don't like it, I go somewhere else and I get it. And what happens is that kind of infiltrates the church sometimes. And we begin to process our experience within his body as what I want, what I like, my opinions, my preferences. And it actually keeps us from sharing because those stand in the way. Risk transparency, because I think that it's pleasing to the Spirit for a moment. Sometimes people make the assumption that it's easy for me to say that we have to give up our opinion, we have to give up our preferences, because they think, well, Craig, you're the senior minister, you're the lead pastor, you get it your way, you don't have to ever give up your opinion. I'd like to speak back to that for a moment, because there are very few things that I get my way with when it comes to leading in the church. Our style of music is not what I would want. If I had it my way, it would be louder and it would be different songs. But guess what it's not about? It's not about what I want. Sean is tasked with seeking the Lord in prayer along with his team and identifying songs that allow as many people as possible to worship and give praise to God. And that means there are gonna be songs that I don't like, there's gonna be songs that you don't like. And that's okay, because it's not about me. 
It's not about my preferences. It's not about my opinions. There are times when we hire staff, we make decisions with staff that aren't what I want. But, but, but the elders together pray and discern and, and seek help and we come up with a direction together and it means letting go of what I want. And that's what allows unity and fellowship to happen when we say, listen, it's not about what I want. It's not about whether I like it or dislike it. If it doesn't compromise the truth of God's word, I can sacrifice and submit and go all in for King Jesus and for the power of his church and his kingdom. But we are so ingrained with what I want, what I like, and my rights and my privileges that if we're going to be a church that, that has the, the substance and the elements and the matter of the church we see in Acts, we have to be willing to lay aside our preferences, our opinions, our likes, our dislikes, sacrificing and submitting, not compromising truth, but sacrificing and submitting for the purpose of his kingdom and what makes the most difference in the life of his kingdom today. Element number three. He says, the breaking of bread. If you were to read uh, verse 42, and if you have a study Bible, I know some of the study Bibles even draw this out. Before each of these elements, Luke actually puts a definitive article, a definite article. So if you were to directly translate this into English, you would say something like, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread. There's a definite article there as well. And to the prayers is what it would say. Why is that significant? Because Luke, who is very specific and very detailed, both in his gospel and the book of Acts, doesn't waste words. Like he is drawing attention to these intentionally. Why does that matter here? The breaking of the bread is far different than just hanging out and having a meal together. Where else does Luke talk about breaking of the bread? How about Luke chapter 22? Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. How about uh, Luke chapter 24? Walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's sharing with them the history of his people and how they all point to the Messiah. And then the moment their eyes are opened, they have been actually walking with Jesus on that trip is when he breaks what? The bread. So Luke, who uses breaking of the bread to discuss the Lord's Supper, now uses that same language in the book of Acts. It's not just breaking bread. It's not just eating together. It's breaking of the bread. He's saying that in the early church, they gathered regularly, routinely, intentionally to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If that's not enough evidence for you, I'd point this out in verse 46. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Again, you read the Gospel of Luke, you read the book of Acts. Luke is always specific, he's always detailed, he's always intentional with his words. He's never redundant. Why would one place he choose to have this isolated case of redundancy? Because if you just translate breaking bread as just sharing a meal together, eating together, essentially verse 46 reads this way. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they ate together in their homes and ate together. No, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Like, there was this rhythm, there was this pattern in the life of the early church where they would intentionally, often we learn from extra biblical resources like the Didache, uh, words that confirm what we see in Scripture. We even see this in 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, that often the Lord's Supper occurred within a larger meal. 
So when the church would gather, when they would eat, when Lydia would make the fried chicken and Phoebe would bring the mashed potatoes, and since Peter can't make rolls, he'd stop by the grocery store and grab them. When they would come together to eat a meal, they would pause intentionally during that meal and do what? Observe the Lord's Supper. They would pause in a moment and say, okay, let's just remember the foundation of our faith. They'd break the bread and they'd say, remember, Jesus gave his life for us. They'd drink the wine or the juice and they'd say, Jesus poured out his blood for us. It was their identifying mark that Jesus had rescued them from sin and rescued them to this new life they were trying to live out in their world. And whenever they ate, they shared in that together because they did not want to lose sight of what was most important, what was foundational, what was the, the anchor of their faith and hope. And yet what happens so often in the church in America is we debate whether we can have communion once a week or once a month like it's some like, obstacle, like it gets in the way. I've heard people say, well, when you observe the Lord's Supper every week in church, it just kind of gets mundane and routine. Really, the sake of being crass, do you tell it to your wife or your husband? Like, we're only gonna have sex once a month, once every six months, because it just gets so mundane, so routine? Really, do you say it to your grandkids? Sorry, I'm not gonna come to your events anymore. I've been to one ball game, I've seen them all. It just gets mundane, it gets routine. Now, where's the impetus when it comes to those things? It's on us to say, I'm gonna value this moment with my grandchildren. I'm gonna value this moment with my spouse. And the same thing happens in this space when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Like, if it's routine, that's on you. Find the way, the discipline to distance yourself from what's going on around you to think about what Jesus did for you and what that means for your life. And furthermore, shouldn't it even take place more than just here once a week? What about in your life groups? What about maybe in your family dinners? What about when you gather with other believers? You want to wreck the world. How about go to El Mason for lunch today? Stop by Kroger on the way and grab some grape juice. You can't bring your own liquor into El Mason. And, and, and how about you gather around the table and as you're eating your tortilla chips, you're eating your chimichangas, at some point someone says, let's just take a break and let's remember really why we're here. That Jesus did everything for us. It sounds ridiculous to our ears, but what would that do? How would that change our perspective it's really hard to gossip about somebody when you've just talked about what Jesus did for you. It's really hard to hate someone and debate about politics or, or econ economy things when, when you just talked about what Jesus did for you. There's power in uniting around the Lord's Supper, and that was an element in the early church. And in the final element, prayer. When you read the book of Acts, and I know some of you are journeying and reading that with us right now, you find on page after page after page, not individuals in prayer, you'll find that, but you find people gathered, the community of Jesus' followers praying together. And they're not just praying for Aunt Edna's kidney. I mean, God cares about Aunt Edna's kidney. But they're praying for God to move. They're praying for men to be released from prison. They're praying while in shackles and chains for God to move and shake and extend his kingdom. They're pleading for God to break through. They're pleading for Paul to make his way to Rome to share the gospel with the influential leaders. They are on their knees. They are praying. They are expectant. They are desperate in prayer. And we see that in Acts chapter two, verse three. They devoted themselves to the prayers. At that point in their life, we see this again in Acts chapter three, where are Peter and John heading? They're heading to the temple to pray. They are, they are still in that routine of kind of the Jewish way of life. We pray at certain hours. So they prayed at certain hours. They prayed intentional prayers and they prayed together. They were people of prayer. 
And yet at 44 years old, remembering probably the last 36, 37 years of my life, growing up in churches, hearing stories of people in churches, what's a repeated pattern in the church in America? We can gather for worship experiences. We can prioritize events. But what happens when the church comes together in prayer? We can't even draw a fraction of the people. And is that not a sign about the place of prayer in our churches? That we can't come together to pray with one another. And could it be that we've convinced ourselves that the hyper speed of our culture and the values of our culture have minimized the place of prayer when we look at the early church and the power with which it's moved and all that was inspired. That's what verse 43 says. Do we forget that prayer was such a pivotal part of what God was doing? Do we forget Jesus who sets the pattern for us? While it was still dark, early in the morning, Jesus went off to a quiet place to pray. Luke tells us, I think it's Luke chapter five, that Jesus was in the habit of going away to pray. What's one of the first things that Jesus teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? This then is how you should pray. Could it be that part of the reason why we don't experience the power and the awe-inspiring movement of God in our day is because we fail to be a people of corporate prayer? And what would change if we did? What would change if generations gathered together and prioritized being on their knees and seeking the heart of God with one another? We'd see mountains move. We'd see giants fall. We'd see tombstones rolled away. We'd see God working out so many of his great purposes. As we move to a close, and I know this went long, I am really sorry for that. This is what happens when I'm gone for a week. There's so much that gets in this brain. Um, in chemistry, there are different types of bonds. Uh, the strongest of those bonds, though, is something called a covalent bond. And a covalent bond, as atoms come together, they borrow and share electrons. The most common that we would be familiar with probably is H2O. You have two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom, and the way they come together is that the hydrogen atoms borrow and they share from the oxygen atom, and that kind of creates this bond that, that isn't broken. And we know how important water is to life. Uh, we can't exist without it. It's a strong bond. When you look at these elements in the early church, they come together and they feed off one another and they create this bond as we commit to the apostles' teaching and we live it out that drives us to be people who share and look to his word about sharing with sacrifice and submission and fellowship. We're seeking him in prayer. We're uniting around breaking of the bread. Like, like it creates this bond and we become this powerful force for him in the world. It creates what we might call an uncommon community. We become a people that aren't perfect, but a people that reflect something that our world is craving in a divisive, conflicted, uncertain, anxious world. Who is primed to provide the peace and the stability and the hope and the joy that is longed for? 
but we, his people. So if we're going to have the chemistry of the kingdom, uh, we have to evaluate our lives by, by his elements. And so I'd encourage you, this is kind of the closing, is that think through these elements, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. What elements are weaker in your life or need more attention? Do you prioritize the apostles' teaching? Do you prioritize reading his word and asking his spirit to teach you through it? Do you prioritize worshiping with his people that you might learn from his word in those settings as well? Temple courts, house to house. Are you meeting him in his word regularly? How can you shift that? How can you